Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast entitled Baseball Scandals. Very rarely can you have a sport where you can teach the history of it purely through its scandals. So if you talk about footballing scandals, there's match fixing and let's say you take English football for example. You have a sort of famous case in the sort of early 60s with Tony Kay and a couple of other players. You had the sort of match-fixing scandal in the 90s with Fashionu, Hans Sagers and Bruce Grobelar. But that doesn't really tell you much of anything about the history of, of English football. It's just players effectively ascertaining that they've got an advantage and... You know, making some money by cheating. I mean, obviously with Tony K, you can talk about the maximum wage, but it's it's limited. Even if you take things like cricket scandals, so if you take uh, Hansi Conyers match fixing, you know, it, it's a interesting sordid tale. I mean, it involves leather jackets, but it doesn't quite really get to the heart of cricketers and the issues and problems that cricketers have it's you know gambling has been part of cricket's history but most of the sort of gambling you know affairs you know things like the Quran report with regards to Pakistan cricket what it comes down to is there are gamblers there is money and the players take advantage of that whether the rights and wrongs of it whether they're underpaid in comparison with other teams all the rest of it it all just comes down to sort of human frailty and sportsman's frailties as well. You know, the you know, arrogance, the, sort, the thought of not getting caught, the fear of having a short career, any number of different things. But with baseball, their main scandals are so such at the heart of what the history of baseball and what it means. So we'll start off at the sort of the epicentre, the first proper national baseball scandal which is the 1919 Black Sox effectively what you had is sort of baseball professional baseball really comes in at some point between the sort of late 1870s early 1880s the first proper professional baseball team are the Cincinnati Reds so effectively they're a traveling baseball team that just go from town to town and they are unbeatable. So effectively, they're, they're something akin to a sporting circus. So in other words, their power was that they were undefeated. So they would simply arrive in your town, they were professionals, they were paid to do this, this was their job, and they'd beat your local team. So they'd be you know, your local factory team. And then they would go on to the next place, you'd sell out the next town over, and they'd beat that town. So eventually, I think they won something like over 100 games in a row. And that was the popularity of it. Simply, this was the greatest baseball team of all time. They're professionals. They are undefeated. No matter what your local nine can do, they will win. And eventually, one day, they lost. And after that, it kind of dissipated. And the team fell apart. And really, sort of professional baseball as a concept kind of took a step back, really. And what you had was something more akin to sort of semi-pro baseball. In other words, you'd have a stadium you, and you'd have sort of leagues, but effectively it would be sort of factory teams. 
So you'd have effectively a factory, you'd have your players, and they'd get paid on top of their ordinary salary to play at the weekends in front of the, the hometown team. But eventually, you know, that model, you know, t- people started to realise, and this was more in the big cities rather than the sort of small towns, that there was money to be made from fully professional baseball. And so you have the sort of early starts of what becomes Major League Baseball. And almost immediately from that, what you have is Challenger. So there's always a, a startup league starting somewhere in this kind of Wild West era. And really what it comes down to is you have what is the National League, and then you get the upstart American League, led by Ban Johnson. And effectively, they kind of battling for players, for you know, your eyes and ears of the fans and what it comes down to eventually they merge and become one entity so you have the american league and the national league which is what we have today and what we now consider major league baseball the only other sort of league that gets anywhere close to really challenging it is the federal league the federal league is is absolutely amazing it's something that really was almost i'd say 50 60 70 maybe even 100 years in advance of its time it was the idea where the players would have sort of power and control and part ownership of the teams. There would be all sorts of what we would now basically consider ordinary sort of workers' rights. And that the power of the team owner wouldn't be that of the sort of feudal overlord. And it's a real threat because they're able to, you know, essentially spend you know, they were luring players away with big salary and with the sort of added benefit of, you know, sort of not feeling as sort of... Essentially, with baseball, what you have is the origins of it is that you have owners who have complete control. They're the ones who basically get the gate and the money and they can really, you know, disseminate that money or trickle it down to the players any way they want. And really what the Federal League was, the first time that essentially the players said, look, what if we ran our own league? And you weren't beholden on the whims of the owner. And that's a huge threat to the the owners. And so they very, very, with malice aforethought, they tried to get the Federal League shut down. And they put all manner of pressure, all sort of financial inducements, so that this breakaway league would fail. And then, so for all the players that decided to stay with the Federal League, when they tried to get back into baseball, the owners were particularly harsh on them. And so really, once that Federal League failed, you simply had one entity. So in other words, if you wanted to make it in professional baseball, it was the majors or nothing, or else you were in your hometown playing semi-pro ball. And so as a result, there's always a sort of lingering resentment between management and the players. And that really culminates in the 1919 Black Sox scandal. So what you have is that Charles Comiskey was owner of the Chicago White Sox. And they were a fairly, you know, they were... The Red Sox were great in the early part of the sort of 1910s. And by about 1918, that was when things started to go wrong. The, the owner didn't have the money, and he started selling off you know, players to the Yankees, 
which is really where you get the Yankees being dominant in the 1920s. But in this kind of bridge period between the Red Sox declining and the rise of the Yankees, the White Sox were, were there and thereabouts as one of the best teams in baseball. And Charles Comiskey was very popular with the fans and the press. But he was remarkably stingy. He was a very ruthless owner. So in other words, these owners were already rich of, out, in of themselves. It wasn't as if their money was dependent on baseball. Baseball owning a team was just a, you know, another bauble in their you know, riches. And so essentially they would get the gate money... But they were always claiming poverty. And even to the current day, you could probably make an argument there are some owners in baseball who are pleading poverty. And so one of the things why they were nicknamed, there's a sort of urban legend of why they were nicknamed the Black Sox, is that the White Sox uniform was essentially White Sox, as in the name. But he would refuse to get the kits and the jerseys uniforms laundered. So effectively, as the season wore on, these whites became dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And because, in his view, it was the players' responsibility to launder the jerseys, the players were like, well, no, we're the players, you, you know, it's your team, why don't you launder them? So eventually, he does. He decides to get all these uniforms, has them professionally laundered, and then takes the money out of their salary. It's that kind of lingering resentment and the fact that he was so popular outside. So in other words, it wasn't as if the players had the sympathy of the fans. There's always been that undercurrent in baseball and in sports in general that the owners have always got the trump card in terms of any argument. Because they can always say to the fans that they are living your dreams. They are professional ball players. Often they're being paid more than you are. So what have they got to complain about? Which is always comes down to the fact that at the same time, though, owners have always got the money and the power and it's the players who have the short careers. But at the same time, no one goes to see sports or baseball for the owners. It is the players. And it's that kind of back and forth that is just recurrent through baseball history in terms of its scandals. So what we get is the 1919 World Series between the Chicago White Sox and the Cincinnati Reds. And the White Sox are overwhelming favourites. Now, there's always been an element of gambling in baseball. One of the things that baseball does in terms of the gambling, I suppose, mindset, it's a sport that's very easy to gamble upon. So what you'd have, because a lot of the, you have to remember this was a day, the era before, Anything like floodlights. So all the games were day games. Most of them were during the week. At which point most people would be the factory in the office. And what you'd have is these sort of hardcore gamblers. Maybe a couple of hundred. Maybe in some cases even thousands. That would essentially just sit out in the bleachers. And they would just bet on the games. And we're not just talking about the result. We're not saying oh well I think the uh, Red Sox will beat the Yankees. And this is my five dollars onto it. It was more each pitch. So someone say, okay, I think that one's going to be a ball. That one's going to be a strike. And it's that kind of... So basically you sit there and most of the baseball games in this era were over between sort of an hour and a half, hour and 45, maybe just a bit over two hours if it went into like extra innings. So it was just two hours of pure gambling, you know, on everything. 
whether that was going to be a hit, whether that was going to be caught, stolen bases. And so there was always this undercurrent of gambling. But also what you've had when you get into the sort of stages of you know, 1919 is that you've had large gambling syndicates, all of whom were sort of linked with you know, effectively organised crime. And there was always the... There had been other World Series games before then that had almost certainly been fixed. But there was never a smoking gun. And there was never quite enough evidence. Or there was never enough outcry. It was something... Black Shots was... Scandal was inevitable. It was going to happen one way or the other. There was always going to be a moment when effectively these players who, in their own ways, were vulnerable... Because they were, effectively speaking, underpaid. They were only ever going year to year. So part of the one of the issues that baseball has in terms of its labour relations up in, in this era is the reserve clause. So effectively what it was is you signed a one-year contract with your team and at the end of the year there was an option effectively for you to have another year. So, but... The problem is if you disliked it, if you didn't like the contract offer you were given, you couldn't sign for anyone else. The reserve clause, the owner basically owns your rights. And effectively, the only way that you could get out of it would be to be released. Which would have essentially, you know, it was always at the owner's discretion. So in other words, if you were terrible, you could be released. But you were, at that point, you were not considered worthy of a contract. But if you were good and you decided that you didn't like the contract and you wanted to sign somewhere else, you couldn't in professional, stay in professional baseball. The owner had your rights. So in that sense, and you're also remembering that you know, baseball careers weren't long. This is the 1990s, 1920s. There's no medical. So if you had a, a damaged shoulder and you can no longer pitch, that was it. Your baseball career was over. There was no pension, nothing like that. It was a very hard scrabble existence you were only ever as good as you know your last game and the potentiality of you being released or chucked out of baseball was quite high and then you'd be sent back to wherever you came from with little more than whatever you managed to save out of baseball so we go back to the series and effectively the gamblers come up to the Chicago White Sox who were already angrier you know Charles Comiskey, and they offered them money to throw the series. Now, slowly but surely, around eight of the team pick up on the offer in some of the meetings, in like the original meetings. Now, one of the clever ones was the backup, who was virtually you know, never going to make any major appearances in that World Series. But he overhears the conversation and he says, look, if you don't give me some money, I'm going to rat you out. And so he gets paid. And one of the things about these kind of you know, scandals and sort of crises is that it's a two-way street. In other words, the gamblers have to believe that they, the money that they're giving the players gives, will, be, will work and that they will be able to throw the series. So essentially, the players then have to get enough of the important people. So in other words, the pitchers, the star players, to get in so that actually they can effectively say to the gamblers, we can throw this series. So they get the pitcher Eddie Chicote, and probably one of the more important figures was Shoeless Joe Jackson. Now, Shoeless Joe Jackson has a fascinating 
baseball hit story. Essentially, he's a kid who grows up in South Carolina, illiterate, but with this God-given gift for baseball. In other words, we don't know how he learned baseball or who taught him. He just seems to, you know, appear as if written out of, you know, a short story in a factory in South Carolina where he's just gifted at baseball. So effectively what he does is he works in the factory and on a Saturday plays for the factory team. And with the money that he's getting from playing baseball on the weekend, he's earning, you know, more than his dad earned. You know, he's earning more than the average man on the street. He's living in the only place he's ever known in South Carolina. He gets married and he's quite happy. You know, when he plays really well, you know, the crowd will throw money at him. Literally, that was something that, you know, was a sort of staple of the, you know, I suppose lower levels of the minor leagues in in America. Is that the fans just, it would be the highlight of their weekend. So if you did something amazing, yeah, they'd just simply throw money at you because they were just happy. And as a result, you just pick up, you know, these coins and dollar bills. And that would essentially be your win bonus, effectively. And... But eventually, the you know, people realise he has this gift. And so eventually he signed up to the majors. And the, you know, at this time, there's no teams in the South. The South is you know, economically weaker than the North. So there's not that many cities. Really what the South is, is an incubator for baseball talent due to its weather. So in other words, you've got... you know. You know, year-round good weather so that allows you to play baseball all the time and get good at it but if you want to make it in the big leagues you have to go up to the big cities up north you know Cleveland, Boston, New York, Chicago, Cincinnati that's where you would then you know make your money and make your mark as a major leaguer so he's signed by Philadelphia led by the legend that is Connie Mack he jumps the train. He goes home, doesn't want to, and eventually goes to, you know, is eventually persuaded to go to Philadelphia and he plays a little bit. But he's laughed at. He's treated as inferior. They're saying because he's illiterate, because he's southern, because he's, you know, I wouldn't say eccentric, but just, you know, out of the norm. And so eventually he demands to be traded to Cleveland and he does really well in Cleveland. At which point, you know, there's he's always got this sense of, I think, resentment is that, you know, back in the South where he, you know, had money and status and in the major leagues, he's always got that sense that someone is making some money off of him and he ends up on the White Sox. And like anybody else, he was, of all the players, he was angry at Comiskey. So they get him in on it. At which point the gamblers say, okay, we believe that you can throw this and here's the money. Now, one of the things that, so at this time, the odds are you know, all on Chicago to win the series in fairly dominant fashion. As a result, the odds for Cleveland, for Cincinnati go up. Just before the series starts, a huge amount of money starts getting wagered on Cincinnati. And it just pricks up ears. Nothing more, but part of the way how you prove that the fix was happening is that the first pitcher, or the first batter for Cleveland, sorry, Cincinnati, had to be hit. And that was just a sign that the players were in on the fix. And so the money was delivered, and 
you know, Cincinnati go on to win. Uh, you know, Chicago makes errors and bad decisions. Any number of bits and pieces. And people start to start looking into it, making notes, saying, well, which plays look right to you, which play, which things don't look out of the ordinary. Now, part of the thing, the gamblers have basically said, we'll give you the money, up, some money up front, and some money as the you know series goes on. And this is where, really, you have to consider that the players were equal parts foolish, naive, greedy, and exploited. They were exploited by ownership. And they were exploited by the gamblers. Because effectively, the gamblers say, well, we've already got you now. Where are you going to go? Are you going to go to the, you know, police? Are you going to go to baseball? Are you going to go to your manager? No, you have to keep quiet. You have to keep throwing the game. And so, naturally enough, they decide that actually their win bonuses now, you know, look far more enticing than the money that, you know, the gamblers have promised them. So they start winning again. And it all sort of culminates in Game 8. So it's a nine-game series. I mean, part of the thing is, is that at this point, baseball is, you know, re- pretty popular, but it's not quite a nationwide obsession, but it's getting there. And so part of the reason they wanted, they had, is because usually a World Series is seven games. But for a few series, they made it nine games just to increase the... I suppose, publicity. So anyway, it gets to game eight, and effectively, you know, if the White Sox win the next two games, they've won the series, and this would be a historical footnote. But the gamblers basically start threatening the players' families, and, you know, Cincinnati wins. And it's one of the things that's so interesting about this scandal is it's a very slow-burn affair. In other words, Cincinnati wins the World Series, but it's really only the next year. In other words, most of the players come back and play, and the White Sox are just as good in you know nineteen twenty as they were in nineteen nineteen. But there's still some rumors circulating, but and it all comes to a head, and there's a court case, and what it is is that they're basically prosecuted effectively for you know sort of fraud and for you know basically what the the district attorney does is he uses the one of the white sox players and says you know basically by misrepresentation this white sox player has lost his win bonus from the world series because the other you know eights were effectively throwing the series now, a couple of the players had made signed confessions, but those confessions are mysteriously removed from the courthouse and in, it's in Chicago as well, this trial. So in no way, shape or form was the jury you know, possibly tainted by you know, White Sox fans who, who actually believed in their heroes. So they get found not guilty. And I suppose at that point, and this is, there's a fantastic movie about it called uh, Eight Men Out. It's based on a book that's written about this. But at this point, the owners have realised that this is an existential threat to baseball. Is that if the fans do not believe that the players are playing straight and that, you know, that gamblers are involved, this could just torpedo the entire sport. And so they decide that there's originally a sort of commission that 
effectively runs the sport. But there's no sort of centre leader or person that can really, you know, dominate the sport. So they go to a federal judge named Kenishaw Mountain Landis, who is publicity hungry and very and a baseball fan, but very self-aware and very savvy in terms of what we now call public relations. And so they say, look, do you want to, can you run this commission? Can you, you know, give your gravitas to the judge and your, you know, obvious love for the game? And he says, no. The only way that I am going to, you know, get involved in this is if you make me the sole commissioner. If you make me the sole arbiter, if you put, empower me, I will do this and I will, you know, air quote, save baseball. And he takes on the role, the uh, owners accept. And really what they're doing is, it, it, it suited them in that regard. In other words, they had this, you know, person with an unimpeachable reputation who would then, you know, effectively, you know, become the sole arbiter, judge, jury and executor. And he basically goes to the eight players, you're banned for baseball for life. Anything to do with gambling, that's it. It cannot be allowed, it cannot be tolerated. And it was really a shocking moment, is that you have some of the best players in baseball banned for life. So they weren't found guilty in a criminal court, you know, depending on how you want to view the you know, nature of the criminal trial. And so you had someone like Buck Weaver. Now, Buck Weaver, it's a, it's a horrible dilemma. He's the third baseman, and he's in on some of the, the original meetings. But he doesn't accept any money, and he played the series particularly well. But he didn't tell anyone. He didn't tell the manager. And this is one of the shocking things about it. The manager had no idea what was going on. He had no idea. So his first year as a baseball manager, can you imagine, you take your team to the... You know, you win the American League, you're into the World Series, your team are overwhelming favourites, and they just fall apart. You know, errors, poor pitching performances. It just, and then to find out effectively a year later that you know, six, seven, eight of them had thrown. It must have been an absolutely just soul-destroying moment. But he doesn't tell anyone, and he gets chucked out because effectively, you know, in Landis's view, you didn't tell anyone. You're just as you know responsible as they are, and you Shoeless Joe gets caught up in this. But if you look at the actual series itself, he hit three seventy five. He hit the series only home run. He had five outfield assists, which is basically throwing a runner out. And it's a it's a difficult one. Is that you know in some of the accounts, contemporary accounts has him as someone who was definitely involved, who was just as angry as Comiskey as everybody else, and there are some which basically say that he was almost this sort of poor country illiterate hick who had absolutely no idea what was going on and effectively just went along with it just because someone told him and just gave him some money. I think personally that he had been in the big leagues long enough and he had seen enough of, you know, the interrelationship between player and owner to know that you know what was going on and he took the money now whether he had any intention of playing badly it looks pretty obvious that he didn't and that he did play up to his you know standards 
But what that means is, is that he's one of the greatest players. And the reason why he's called Shoeless Joe is a wonderful story. So, And this kind of plays into this sort of image that is really, even to the current day, still exists of him being this sort of country hick. He's one his sort of first step towards professional baseball is when he plays for a team called the Greenville Spinners in South Carolina. So this is one step above, you know, the factory ball that he was playing. And he's he's being paid something like mm, I want to say $900 a month. It's quite a lot of money back in those days. And effectively he buys a new pair of cleats, so uh, what we would call boots, football boots, baseball boots. And they give him horrendous blisters. And he asks out of the lineup the next day so he can rest his feet. Manager says, Look, you know, you've been promised, you know, it's either $90 or $900, but I'll double check that later. But anyway, detail. He's being paid more money than he'd ever make, you know, playing factory ball and working in the factory Monday to Friday. And it's still the minor leagues, kind of a couple of, about two or three levels below Major League Baseball. And so he says, okay, I'll play the game. But, you know, he does it, you know, shoeless. It's the only time in his, in his career he'd ever done that. And so he hits a triple and he sprints around the bases to third base. And someone in the crowd goes, and there's, there's two accounts of it. One is that they call him, you shoeless bastard. <laughs> And the other one is you shoot the son of a bitch. Personally, I think, you know, in terms of just the aesthetics and the, you know, is that son, you shoot the son of a bitch sounds more likely. And he hated that nickname. And that nickname followed him around. And one of the, so it might, this might be an apocryphal sort of story, is that when he was leaving the courtroom, a uh, little boy sort of in the crowd just shouted out, say it ain't so, Joe. And that's something that stuck. So all of these things have stuck. And this is sort of, you know, 80, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. I mean, Shoeless Joe Jackson is a huge part of the story from, you know, Field of Dreams and other such sort of, you know, books and all these different kind of, you know, societal things that have come out of baseball from just this one player. I mean, he was a gifted player. He was, a, you know, someone who was really bringing baseball towards where it was heading. In terms of, you have someone like Ty Cobb who was kind of old school genius in his wave but you know back in those days you, you had the baseball bat is that a lot of people batted with you know their hands far apart round about maybe like a foot apart as a way of getting control of the bat in terms of hitting and shooter show was completely different he both hands together which is now what you do in the modern era but so really what that means is that gambling becomes baseball's one immutable rule. You can do lots of other things, but if you gamble on baseball, that's it. It's the, the nuclear option. One of the, the, the sort of sad side effects of Kenneshaw Mountain Landers becoming Major League's you know, first commission is that in the short term, he does save the game. In other words... You know, there are rumours of, of other games being fixed, but ne never to the extent that a World Series gets fixed. Or there's even rumours of it. It's just, people now realise that if you ch gamble on baseball, it's just a death sentence on your any hopes that you ever have of doing anything with regards to baseball 
and making money from it. And the only way you can is to play under an assumed name in just the absolute lowest of the low, like, you know, basically beer league softball, the equivalency of that. But also by con you know, having such a huge amount of control within by being commissioner, is that he's someone that goes more than out of his way to enforce the colour line, to stop you know, African Americans, to stop Latino Amer Latin Americans playing baseball. And it's a real stain on the sport. Which then, in a way, leads us on to our next kind of sort of major scandal, which is that of the labour relations and there's whereby in the Black Sox scandal there's no real heroes in other words everyone in their own way comes out worse in other words you know Comiskey while he is notionally the victim antagonised and cheapskated his players to the point where they threw a World Series and Kenneshaw Mountain Landis Yes, he you know, saves baseball and, you know, it still it explodes in popularity in the 1920s, but it's self-aggrandising. It's him wielding power, you know, in a, you know, a somewhat authoritarian manner. In other words, you know, he really, in, you know, effectively enjoyed banning these people for life. In other words, you know, the, when you're on the permanently ineligible list, you can't get into the Hall of Fame. And really, Shoeless Joe, in some ways, is such an amazing baseball story that by taking him out of the Hall of Fame, you, the Baseball Hall of Fame, more than any other Hall of Fame, is a way of telling the story of baseball. And by keeping him out in that way, it's one of these things that is just a sort of a mark on baseball that can never be quite undone. In other words, you've got a handful of different sort of scandals. And how baseball deals with them and how they don't deal with them really linger. That No other sport has this problem. In other words, we're not talking about the impact of body lying now in cricket in the way that people still talk about the Black Sox scandal. It's that kind of thing. It's something so deeply in the heart of baseball that it needs some way of ending. You know, some kind of way to, I suppose, square the circle. In other words, to allow baseball really to move on to its future. In other words, we're, it's 2018 and we're still having debates about the scandals of the 20th century. And this is especially true with Pete Rose and the gambling sort of scandal that I'll, I'll go on to later on in the podcast. So, yeah, so really the players, you know, and I've said this, is that, you know, they were gullible in certain ways, but at the same time they were victims and what they did was stupid, elementarily stupid, and that they got caught. But then you have someone like Buck Weaver who spent the rest of his life and his family is still keeping up to try and basically be taken off this list. It's not that he'd ever go into the Hall of Fame, but it's just a way of saying that he, you know, he was in an Awful situation. Who was he supposed to go to? Who was he supposed to talk to? How could he... You know, you'd be ratting out your teammates. What, you know, would that have solved it? Would, that, would they have been able to resolve it? I, I don't think so. 
So whereby there's no real hero, in other words, Kenneshaw Mountain Landis, you know, uses his power to enforce the, you know, colour line in baseball. You know, there, there's just, you know, the gamblers, you know, <laughs> renege on there, you know, and threaten the players. No one really comes out of it looking particularly great. The only sort of good thing that happens out of the Black Sox is that it's such a huge scandal is that it stops anyone doing it ever again to that level and to that extent, which then allows baseball to get its popularity and to explode in the 20s and 30s. Now, with regards to the labour wars of the 70s and 60s and 80s, there really is a hero. It's Marvin Miller, who in 1966 becomes head of the Players' Union. Now, there really hadn't been... So we've talked earlier in the podcast about the Federal League, about the sense of the players trying to get power, and they fail. In other words, you have the commissioner, who effectively is a... serves as a leader, but at the same time, there's the element that the owners can get rid of the commissioner if they want to, as a collective whole. And really, at no point is the commissioner sympathetic to, you know, the players' labour issues. So the closest thing you have, you know, in the 20th century up until Marvin Miller is in 1946 you have the Baseball Guild. So they try and form something equivalent to a labour union. And they get a couple of, you know, they get a minimum salary and they get some money for, you know, food in spring training. And the person that runs that is called Murphy. So, of course, as they're being baseball players, they immediately call this sort of lunch money Murphy money. But it peters out, and effectively, so in 1946, the, I think, minimum wage for a baseball player is $5,000 a year. And this is $5,000 that's only paid during the, you know, regular season. So that's basically April through to September, October. If you're lucky enough to get into the World Series, that's October. And... By the time you get to 1966, the minimum wage for a baseball player is $6,000. So in other words, in the 20 years, and this is a period in American history which is quite a, prof, you know, a, economically speaking, quite a prosperous era. Although then, you know, as anyone like myself who has studied American economic history, which is never going to be a podcast that I'm going to do, but there were, you know, some downsides. But over that 20-year period, it was a period of, prosperity in that effectively it was ridiculous that baseball players were only making a minimum $1,000 more than they were in 1946 in 1966. Someone did the maths and that even if it had gone with just the standard inflation this was $7,500. So they're underpaid, they've got no insurance, any of all these bits and pieces and when Marvin and what happens is is that they have a chance to elect Marvin Miller and the owners, because Marvin Miller at this point is a very famous labour negotiator. And he's been involved in some high-level you know, labour battles that have gone all the way to the White House for the US Steelworkers Union, which was a, at that period of time a very big union. You know, steel was a very important part of the American economy at that sort of era. And the owners collude and manage to effectively tell the players don't vote for this person, this person is just bad. And they re-vote through Murphy from 1946, that time. And he's paid off and he just does nothing. And the players finally sort of twig that 
they need a proper skilled negotiator to come in and run the union. So he's voted in and he comes to the Labour Union for baseball players, which turns out to be $6,000 in an account and a rented file space in our agent's office. And that's it. And immediately he looks at the reserve clause, which we've talked about with regards to the Black Sox scandal. And it's still in place. So in other words, you are basic. There's no concept of free agency. You are completely at the mercy of the owner and how much they basically, whatever they give you as a contract offer, it's take it or leave it. You can't sign for anyone else. There was no other leagues that you could go to that was in any way, shape or form, you know, comparable to the major leagues. It's not as if you could go to Japan. It wasn't as if you could potentially go to Mexico, but in terms of salary, in terms of standard baseball, it just, and even if you wanted to go back to the majors, your, you know, ownership was whoever your last team was, and that was the owner who had that power. So immediately he comes up with strategies to get more money into things. So they get their own, the, um, their image rights from the use of bubblegum cards. So basically, and this is a, it's still quite a big thing in America, is that you buy a pack of bubblegum and you get baseball cards and things like tops and all the rest of it. And so he managed to collectivise their, their image rights and get money for it, which is ingenious. And it was a way of establishing the union to have you know, money to then you know, go on to the big fights that were coming up with regards to the labour struggle. He institutes you know, collective bargaining. So I'm, I'm going to read a quote rather than try and um, to remember it and give it out verbatim. And this is from an article by Cliff Kokoran in The Athletic. First he teamed up with Scott to license the players' images collectively. Initially to provide the union with a revenue stream into the players' dues began to arrive the following summer though such licensing would ultimately yield tens of millions of dollars for the players. And he banged out a new pension deal with the owners, shifting the fund from one which the players contributed to one funded solely by ownership, while repurposing the uni the players' contributions as voluntary union dues. Miller not only got the players to double their contribution to the fund, but obtained health insurance, life insurance and widow's benefits for the players for the first time. And there's a further sort of quote I want to read out. In February 1968, the union and the owners came to terms on the first collective bargaining agreement in professional sports history. Among the players' gains were increases in the cash allowance for meals and incidentals throughout the season, as well as for spring training, during which the players did not draw a salary, improved travel conditions, new scheduling rules addressing off days and double headers, severance pay for players released during the season, a revised standardised contract, and a reduction in the maximum pay cut. Most, most significantly, the minimum salary was raised to $10,000, finally catching up to and surpassing the rising cost of living since 1947, and a grievance procedure was established which would allow the players to take their disputes with ownership to the commissioner. I think that just gives you a flavour, and this was when he originally, this is maybe you know, sort of the first two or three years that Marvin Miller was you know, running the players' union, and just this, the sea change and how important that was just for the daily lives 
of these players. Because usually what had happened is previously, the only way that you could get a, you know, if you had a salary grievance, would be to hold out. So in other words, you wouldn't turn up to spring training, and effectively you were playing chicken with the owner. So in other words, whoever was going to blink first. Either you were going to sign that contract and play, you know, under whatever money the owner had offered, or the owner would put potentially, you know, say, well, I can't really do without my star player. I'll just throw some money at it just to smooth it over. But in general, even when some of the biggest players like uh, Joe DiMaggio tried it, it rarely worked. More often than not, you know, the player would accept what they were given. There were many other things that Marvin Miller did. But I think the the most important, and, and there's again, there's another hero in this story, is Kurt Flood. Now, Kurt Flood was a outfielder, particularly talented one, and he wanted to basically get traded. And the team he was on refused. And so, basically, he sat out. He refused to sign his contract. And eventually, it came down to um, a court case. And after a couple of years... What they came that the courts came back with was the reserve clause was was effectively unconstitutional. Was basically illegal, and that was where the advent of free agency came in, and so that meant for the first time is that once your contract you know ran out, effectively you could then sign for whoever you wanted within Major League Baseball, and it was a way of getting and that rose salaries, and it also added to the. You know, competitive balance. In other words, teams were able to spend more money because there was more players to choose from, and it really advented, you know, brought in the advent of a new age for baseball. But with all of that kind of effectively success that Marvin Miller, it bred resentment with the owners, who in this case really are the the villain of the piece. So in other words, they're consistently, you know, losing these battles with the players. They're having to spend more and more money. And really what that leads into is the collusion in the 1980s. So effectively, the owners, as a cabal, came up and said, we will not sign free agents. Therefore, I won't sign your free agents if you don't sign my free agents, which effectively meant even if you got to free agency, there was no one offering you a contract, which would mean you'd then have to effectively re-sign for whatever your current club was offering you. And that was a hugely damaging thing in terms of, again, like I said, competitive balance. You know, it stifled salaries and it really did the game a major disservice. And it robbed the players of, you know, huge amounts of money. And really, eventually, again, in the late 80s, came down to a court case and they were found guilty of collusion. Major League Baseball, and they had to you know, effectively compensate all those players who were affected. It was several hundred million dollars, which in the sort of 90s, you know, 80s, 90s, was still a hefty amount of money and a huge defeat for the owners. And again, that lingering resentment then, in a way, and I'm in this sense kind of oversimplifying it, but in terms of simply because I'm talking to a British audience about this, for the most part, who haven't really got experience of baseball's labour arguments, is that there's strikes throughout the 80s, and the shoe strike happens in 1994, midway through the season. Because 
there's co- effectively every few years the collective bargaining agreement that Marvin Miller first agreed with the Major League Baseball and the owners and the commissioner comes up for renewal. And there's always huge arguments over, you know, the owners saying that they, you know, the amount of money they're giving to the players and revenues and all the rest of it is that's leaving them out of pocket and that baseball is losing money and that they need to cut costs and the players arguing that baseball has large amounts of money and revenue and attendance and that they you know should be getting paid more. And what it comes down to is in 94, midway through the season, they have a strike. And there's been some strikes that have led, you know, were quite quickly sorted out, and others that went on for months. Now, if it's an off-season, what that would do is that would eat into spring training, you'd have a slightly shorter spring training, and you'd have slightly less games. So one season was 146 games rather than 162, which is an impact, but it's not not the end of the universe. It was an impact, but eventually baseball got started in sort of April and ended in October. There was a World Series. It wasn't cataclysmic. And mid-season ones, yes, you, you know, there was again some games were lopped off the schedule. And it was it was impactful, obviously, if you were, you know, are used to baseball every single day in the summer and there's no baseball. That had an impact. But what 94 was, was the final culmination is that they the owners overplay their hand and the players don't come back and with each passing day as it gets closer and closer to whereby you could restart the season and have some form of postseason. In the 80s they had a situation with a strike where they had to basically split the season into two. So you had half a season and whoever won the divisions would then play whoever won the divisions from the second half of the season. In this instance there was just no way they could save it. And so the season was cancelled. The World Series was cancelled for the first time ever. Effectively, outside of you know war, there was no postseason. There was no World Series, and that was cataclysmic. The impact that had on fans and the anger that came out of that, and it's also, in some way, shape, form, there were so many. Everything that happened seemed to be multiplied. So in other words, the best team in baseball in 1994 were, well, one of the best, was the Montreal Expos. They were a expansion franchise from the 70s, and they'd never quite, they'd had moments where they were close to success. They'd played a um, postseason game, ironically enough, in that split season due to the strike, and they lost to um, the Dodgers. But in this instance... That team were at its peak. And as a result, the ownership lost quite a bit of money. And they were not one of the richer owners. And so by the time baseball was then brought back for the 95 season, the moment had been lost. And that was really, at that point, was where the, they basically traded a lot of their best players. And the team never quite recovered from that. And not only did they, it wasn't just that they had a, like five, ten years of being in the cellar and not being very good is that that led the team to basically have to... Baseball took it over as a ward. So in other words, the other 29 clubs were running it, and they played some games in Puerto Rico, and eventually the decision was made in the early 2000s that Montreal can no longer effectively, without a new stadium and without new ownership, could not function. 
So they moved the team down to Washington. It's kind of a counterfactual what if, but had that season finished, and let's say they had a long playoff run, or even won you know, the World Series, you'd probably still have a team in Montreal now. And so for all of those fans, it was just... It still is a lingering pain in baseball. And I, personally, myself, I hope they put a team back in Montreal. But with each passing year, it becomes more complicated. In other words, you need a brand new downtown stadium, which effectively means you need an ownership group that has $600 million, maybe 800 maybe even a billion, to pay for this. And the willingness to then, you know, effectively... You know, baseball would then have to expand. And there's likelihood in the next sort of five to ten years there will be two expansion teams. But it, everything becomes complicated. And I think the funniest thing is one of their most famous um, supporters is uh, Donald Sutherland, the actor. And I was watching a documentary about the Montreal Expos. It's a fantastic book about by the Montreal Expos, Up, Up and Away, by um, the sports writer Jonah Carey. And... One of the things, because Montreal is bilingual, so you've got you know, uh, French Canadians and English and French are spoken, is that effectively, when the team moved there, they would have to have an English language radio broadcast and a French language broadcast. But obviously, these you know the sports you know writers well well there's no real French translations for all of the baseball terms like you know hit and run. Bases, stolen bases, center, you know, all these different terms that we're just so used to. And that, you know, in some ways was able to translate quite easily into Spanish. French didn't have that. So literally they were having to, you know, before the first season, make up French translations. And, uh, you know, it's just some of them are just literally made up off the top of their head. Like, well, that sounds French and that kind of explains what I'm trying to get ahead. But it's... um. It's called Up, Up and Away by Jenny Carey. I would recommend anyone listening to this t- t- to buy it. And so really, what you then leads to is the... It's a steroid crisis. So eventually, baseball in 1995 comes back, but there's just... The fans are still angry. It's still raw. You know... <laughs> With, with with baseball scandals, there's really two different types of scandals. You've got, you know, playing to lose, which is, or playing not to win. So you have throwing the World Series, gambling. Or you have collusion, which is where the owners are more important, more interested in the bottom line than not, than paying for free agency and to try and win. And then you've got the second type, which is you know, cheating to win, which is steroids. And what you get with steroids is that one of the, my favourite sports writers calls it a Wild West era. In other words, steroids were effectively illegal. But there was no one... We all know... At some point, you know, you'd have to say 60s and 70s, you had steroids came into, I suppose, the public consciousness for the first time. So you had things like bodybuilding, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, that kind of muscularity that was 
that Mr. Universe contest, which was obvious that to get that level of bodybuilding wasn't natural. It was not something that you could just go to a gym and work out pretty hard and have good genes. It was something that you'd have to have some form of help. And, you know, it comes into professional wrestling in the 80s. You know, you have things like Muscle Beach. It's something that people had some sort of faint awareness. It comes into athletics, especially things like, you know, sort of, the 1988 Olympic 100 metre final, where I think, I think as of today, I think the top five or top six, when they've retested the blood samples and the urine samples, that you know, most, if not all of the, those, the first top six were definitely on some form of steroids. So you had the uh, Ben Johnson scandal. But it eventually seeps into baseball slowly but surely. And by the 90s, you've got, Players who effectively in the off season were going to gyms and were coming across you know steroid dealers, so it was kind of this murky thing. Well, technically it was illegal. It wasn't as if law enforcement was cracking down. So in other words, it wasn't illegal to necessarily have steroids, but it was illegal to ship them in. So it was that kind of weird grey area where it wasn't you know in other words it would it wasn't being clamped down. And Major League Baseball sort of contributed to that because they didn't have any rules. So there was no drug testing. So really, it was illegal on paper, but not there was no way you were going to get caught. And so some baseball players started to use it, and it worked. And so they would then tell their other teammates. And it was just when you had a sort of sea change in attitude whereby baseball players were in the sort of 60s and 70s and 80s were very used to you'd have this very wearing 162 game season you'd have maybe 15 20 30 games of spring training and then once the season was over you just rested you did a little bit of running a bit of training but you didn't use weights and it was only then really when you got the sort of you know bodybuilding starts to come into sort of public consciousness that they start using weights and they start going to gyms and then start effectively coming you know, across bodybuilding and the use of steroids. Prior to that, drug use in terms of performance enhancing was really more the 60s and 70s was more the concept of greenies, so amphetamines. So the idea was is that because you do huge amounts of cross-continental travel, so often you're on the road for playing 10, 11 games in pretty much... 12 days and that one day is a travel day so you might basically you know play a game up until 10 o'clock at night you then have to rush to the airport and you fly overnight and you get into the next city you know at three o'clock in the morning and you've got a day game at 12 o'clock and so effectively players took greenies and it was it comes down to a philosophical argument you know where do you draw the line with performance enhancing so in other words, if you wake up with a headache and you get to the ballpark and you have a headache and you take an aspirin and you then the headache goes away and then you smash a home run, is that performance enhancing? Well, yes, if you, you, know, if you have the blinding headache, you might not hit that home run, but you take the pill. But that's not considered you know, performance enhancing, whereby if you were to juice up and you know, take steroids, that's considered a no-no. 
but if you let's say had a sore shoulder but you went and had an operation it's that kind of weird gray area and it's a constantly kind of shifting line in other words a lot of the use of sort of amphetamines in the 60s and 70s was really effectively because the schedule but the infrastructure behind the sport was so lagging so in other words you had this punishing 162 game season but you don't have the travel that we have today like private jets and bits and pieces like that or the sort of you know sports massage or really sports science so for those players who were really effectively dog tired and were beat up and this was an era in which you were supposed to play 162 games. It wasn't today where you might only play 140, 150, and that there are other, you know, there was really just a trainer. And that person wasn't a medical sports science expert in the way how we would think of it today. So actually ha- taking a greenie, which would then, you know, you feel energised and you go out and play well, that wasn't considered... We now consider it cheating, but back in those days, it was more of a grey line. And it was the sense that lots of people were doing it, including people like Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle. It was just part of the... It was really... The technology was there before the ethics. And then it's really after the fact that, you know, we've come to the point now where amphetamines have been banned by baseball. And so really, when you get to the mid-90s, baseball was back, but it's still... In decline, it's still in the doghouse. There's a set, a certain selection of people that have turned off, and it's really only until you get to the, and there's a, an explosion of offense that happens in sort of ninety six, but mainly ninety seven. You get the great home run chase between Mark McGuire of the St. Louis Cardinals and Sammy Sosa of the Chicago Cubs, and it captures America. In other words, they're going for the record of Babe Ruth and Roger Maris. And it's just a way that brings people back into the game. You know, ordinary fans, casual fans. And you start, you know, at this point, you know, ESPN is sort of close to its zenith. It's before the internet. It's where newspapers and television were really at its peak. And it does capture the heart of America. But... And this is where it becomes awkward because, and this is the irony of how to deal with steroids, is that a lot of the explosion in offence was because of new ballparks, which is a way of increasing revenue for the owners. You had two expansion teams, and that was because, essentially, when you expand a league, you charge the new team a fee to enter, and that's shared with the owners, and that money was basically used to pay off the collusion debts that they had from the court case. So, because you, when you add two teams, you dilute the talent pool. That led to, and the new ballpark. So, there was lots of different reasons and changes to the ball that led to the offensive explosion. But steroids did add to that. The players were getting bigger. They were able to play longer. So in other words, the ageing curve went from your early 30s to, in some cases, late 30s, 40s, where you were, in some cases, players were putting up better numbers than when they were at 40 than they were at 26. And at first, because really for an extended period of time in the 90s, a lot of baseball writers weren't baseball writers. They were dealing with 
I suppose, real-life journalism, so labour, you know, labour laws, union issues, you know, pub, you know, court cases, you know, labour negotiations, all the things that really are tertiary in, in a sports writer's, in other words, it's something that you might come across once in a while, but for about a year, 18 months, it was dominant. You weren't covering games because there wasn't games. And suddenly to then get a wonderful story. So in other words, you know, Sammy Sosa was from you know, the Dominican Republic and, you know, brought a whole different demographic to, you know, Chicago, Chicago Cubs and Wrigley. You know, you've had Dominican flags, you have fans coming through the gates that might not have done so previously. And then you have, you know, sort of Mark McGuire had that kind of, you know, he was ginger, quite big. He kind of just had that country boy feel to him. And, you know, the, the Cubs and the Cardinals played in the same division. And both of their ballparks were iconic. So you had Wrigley and, to an extent, Bush Stadium. And it was so easy to get caught up in it. But often, but then once it came out that, you know, Sammy Sosa, that you know, Mark McGuire had taken performance in Nazi I think a lot of these people that dealt with at the time felt as if they'd been personally lied to. And, it, and it's complex in the sense that there's a famous instance where basically Mark McGuire was being interviewed at his locker and as, there's a scrum of people around the locker and essentially one of the pillboxes from his locker gets knocked down and picked up by one of the journalists. And it's... Um, I can never get the pronunciation right. I'm going to butcher this. I think it's Androdrestione. And essentially it's like a muscle builder. that, And he got asked at the time, said, oh, it's fine. It's just, you know, like a supplement. But it didn't get... It kind of got remarked upon um, I think a couple of journalists who weren't there picked it up and the consensus with the baseball world and the journalistic world was just ignore it you know you're just making a big deal out of nothing and slowly but surely in terms of you know the sort of drip for, you know feed of these sort of things a little bit like the Black Sox scandal is that it all over several years and it finally gets to the point where in 2003, the union, who at first were very much anti the idea of drug testing at work, which I can sort of understand, but at the same time, in a professional sports context, you know, finally Major League Baseball sort of, and the players union agree, and they have, I think, something like 150 players are randomly tested, and if more than 30% you know, show for you know, steroids, we'll start instituting testing. And the idea was is that these 100-plus players, it would be all done secretly and that their names were never to be you know, leaked out. Of course, several years later they were. And so what you now have is that you now have one of the strictest and probably best you know, drug testing regimens of any kind of major team sport. But now we're getting into a an argument really over the because the steroid era is gone and now aging you know the sport's getting younger and players you know aren't playing into their mid thirties at the same level and you know they're aging now. So the difficulty is now we're left with something like the Hall of Fame. And as I've said, the Hall of Fame is about teaching baseball history. So you've got people like Barry Bonds, who's one of the greatest hitters of all time, and Roger Clemens, one of the greatest right-handers of all time. 
who are struggling to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. They're not getting the, the vote the votes from the writers. And it's difficult because both of them almost certainly took steroids and cheated. Now, we don't know how many people took steroids. We don't know the extent to it. I mean, there are different types of steroid use in terms of what you use. In other words, whether it's to like recover from injury, whether it's just to get back in the gym. But on a more honest level is that you have, let's say if you're in the minor leagues and you are two notches away from being released and you have to go back into the real world, I can understand if you're desperate and if, or if you're, you know, you've been signed out of the Dominican Republic for 25 grand and that's, and this is your last hope. I can understand that level of desperation for those people taking performance enhancing drugs as a last resort. It's still wrong and if you get caught you deserve whatever ban you get. I think there's a massive difference with, with like Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens is they were great players. Before they ever took any steroids, they were Hall of Famers. And I think Barry Bonds is the more interesting kind of case in the sense that there's a really good book um, called Game of Shadows. It really kind of goes into the sort of... It's mainly about Barry Bonds, but it's about the steroid era. Because effectively, Barry Bonds was a, a brilliant baseball player. Not the loveliest person you're ever going to come across... He, at times he comes across as arrogant, aloof, any number of different... His, his backstory is quite interesting. Maybe one day I'll do a podcast about that. Because it, it is worthy of a podcast in of itself. But he's a great baseball player. In other words, he plays left field. He can hit home runs. He can hit average. He can steal bases. He's just an all-round brilliant baseball player. And he's ageing into his early 30s in about the mid-90s. And effectively what happens, he gets superseded by... Maguire, Sosa, any number of other lesser players who effectively have taken steroids and have now starting to hit 50, 60, 70, you know, 60 plus home runs on a yearly basis. And he's stuck being a brilliant player, but you know, his natural, you know, I think his personal best was somewhere like 43, which was great, but in a high offense era with steroids and all the rest of it, it looked puny and almost sort of in a fit of pique and anger and jealousy, he gets onto the steroids. Now, it's the best way of putting it is, is that Barry Bonds did not take steroids to stop people using steroids. But actually, the end result was exactly that. Is that he's almost like a you know, superhero gone wrong. He's like something out of Marvel is that when he takes steroids and the way how he trained from it is that his body explodes. I mean, his head, I think they said, went up four hat sizes and he becomes this behemoth of a man. And when he starts hitting home runs, he doesn't just you know, hit 50 or 60, he obliterated it. I mean, he broke the major league record of 70, which was set by Mark McGuire. He hit 73. And it would have been even more than that had he not been walked yeah, ridiculously huge amounts. Yeah. There was even at one stage in one game where the bases were loaded and he was late innings and the opposing manager had him intentionally walked 
So he goes to first base. And that's called a run. In other words, they were willing to give up a run because he was so dangerous. They, the fear was that he was going to yeah, hit the grand slam and score four runs. That's the level of dominance. And so as a result, it really brought home to people. At first, you know, it was very difficult because steroids are very hard to quantify. Well, you know, what's someone, you know, who's taking them, who's not taking them. But when Barry Bonds, at, you know, effectively late 30s, was hitting better than when he was winning MVPs at 25, 26, 27. And he got to the point where he broke the, you know, Hank Aaron's record for most home runs, which was 755. And it was a really soulless chase because we all, by that point, ascertained that he had broken the aging gap, he had broken the rules, he had taken steroids, and it damaged the game. Now, this is where you now have these two separate schools of thought. You've got you know, the old school writers who said, cheating is cheating, he devalued the game, I'm never voting him into the, the Hall of Fame. And then you've got the flip side of it, which is the new sort of age writers who are saying, well, it's a multifaceted problem. Baseball didn't do enough to stop steroids. It was a wild west. It was There was no testing. There was no punishment if you did take them. Barry Bonds and you know, Roger Clemens are brilliant players, and you can't tell the story of baseball without putting them in. I tend to go on the second school of thought. As much as at the time I was angry about Barry Bonds and as much as it, it, there would be some kind of visceral pleasure in you know, banning him from the Hall of Fame and you know, locking him out because he's a jerk, you're not telling the story of baseball. Because effectively what Bonds did by showing, by pushing cheating to its furthest possible thing was that you can't have a sport where you have no aging curve, where no one gets older, and they only get bigger and bigger and hit longer and longer home runs. You know, it just, there is an element of the myth of baseball that you have to be able to believe in it. And that's no more different from the Black Sox scandal, it's no more different from the sort of collusion scandal. In other words, the old school writers, their rage is legitimate in the sense that their rage and their outrage and the fans' outrage led to the testing we have today, which is good, which now means that the game is cleaner and it's fairer, and we all can, you know, we all know that people will cheat, but there are rules in place. But that rage has now been assuaged, and that now we need to sort of reckon with it because as much as cheating is awful on some level it was cheating to win which I can live with a lot more than cheating not to win and plenty of people from the collusion you know the owners and the commissioner they have been put into the hall of fame and Marvin Miller who we talked about earlier the head of the baseball union hasn't can you believe that all of that he did all of the the amazing sacrifices and that historically have been in baseball you know the battle between labor and ownership and they haven't put him in and he, he's he unfortunately passed away a few years ago 
having never been put into the Baseball Hall of Fame. It is an absolute travesty. It is everything that is wrong between decision-making and committees. So there was committees that were basically in the Hall of Fame to you know, decide on you know, executives and umpires and all the rest of it. You have to have Marvin Miller, because what if he hadn't? Think of all the damage that you know, things like collusion, things like you know, cheap skate ownership has done in terms of gambling. And so I think we need to reckon with our past, because one of the reasons I fell in love with baseball in the mid-90s was the home run chase of 1997. It helped save baseball, because people like me, because all they had, it was just, it was the 7.30 sports bulletin on the BBC Breakfast News. And I think the reason, I, I presume that the person who used to edit it was in some way, shape or form a baseball fan, because there just seemed to be lots of little baseball clips that used to be put in there. And nowhere else really can I think of where there was any kind of major coverage of baseball at that time. And so I got caught up in the, the, the stadiums. And I've been to America a couple of times and, and fallen in love with baseball there. But something that really sustained it in a period of time when, you know, other than going on holiday to America, the other 50 year, weeks in the year, there was, you never came across baseball in any meaningful sense. And that's the same for a lot of people. In other words, they hit home runs. It got people to love baseball again. Yes, maybe the there were some you know, elements to it that we don't like, but how often in our lives do we get you know, pure black and white where you know, something is an unalloyed good? There's always you know, shades of grey to it. And so really, I'm going to... Let me sort of make one kind of last sort of side swipe before getting to sort of the you know, kind of conclusion. I want to talk about Pete Rose. Pete Rose is the hit king. In other words, he's the person with the most ever hits in Major League Baseball. And he overtook uh, Ty Cobb. Now, Pete Rose is an icon to a certain type of American, a certain type of American is that he sort of comes out from the in the early 60s and he's not the greatest baseball player. He, he can hit for a little bit for average, a little bit of power. He's defensively quite a good player, but in other words, he's just a someone who got to the big leagues through pure grit, determination and hard work rather than he used whatever natural talent he had and pushed it to the absolute limits. And so he came through in Cincinnati and he became kind of like a, a hometown hero. He was part of the Big Red Machine, which was a great sort of cleave, uh, sorry, great, I suppose a dynasty. Yeah, a dynasty of 70s teams, the Big Red Machine, who were brilliant. And he goes on to play for you know, Philadelphia. He also plays for Montreal. But really, he stands out in sort of Cincinnati and Montreal and, and and Philadelphia as a personification of the sort of fan in the stand. In other words, he would just he was nicknamed Charlie Hustle because he would just run out every single play. He would try and play 162 games every single year, whether you be through injury, through pain, through anything. And eventually, at the back end of his career, he's getting close to Ty Cobb's 
you know, hit records, sort of 4,000 hits. And he eventually becomes sort of player manager, and he just, by almost sheer force of will, gets over the line and becomes the hit king. I mean, one of the other most famous moments he has on a baseball diamond is the 1970 All-Star game, where it's a tight game, and he's running to the plate, and it's effectively a throw from the outfield, and he absolutely batters the catcher, who's you know trying to block the plate, catch and tag him out. And he separates Ray Fosse, the catcher's shoulder. Ray Fosse's career never quite managed to recover from that. But it was more that Charlie hustle. That thing was, even if it was a, an exhibition game. And all-star games at that time were very competitive. But he took it to the nth degree of competitiveness. And so he's... And this was in the sort of... He eventually retires and becomes the full-time manager of the Cincinnati Reds in the late 80s. And then it comes out that there are rumours that he bet on baseball, that he had a gambling problem. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, one of, when he was going for the hit record, he used to say that he would dream of Ty Cobb, you know, the person who had the record. He had that kind of focus. But almost as a corollary from that was that he was incredibly... He had a weakness for gambling and a weakness for hanging out with the wrong individuals. And so eventually there was allegations and he denied it and denied it and denied it. And it leads to an investigation, you know, in, by Major League Baseball. And they have a report. And effectively, the report says, we believe he gambled on baseball. And so he's, you know, he violates the one sacred rule in baseball. You can't bet on it. The one thing that every single year before spring training, they come round to you and say, the one thing you cannot do in baseball more than anything else is gamble. And he denies it and denies it. And the stress of this kind of huge investigation, because he was a you know, hero you know, to a large percentage of Americans who love baseball, because he, that grit. They, they, people would imagine about, you know, Pete Rose was, if I was a baseball player, I'd be Pete Rose. I wouldn't be the most talented, I wouldn't be, but I would work hard, I would you know, hustle every single day. And the commissioner at the time was under a huge amount of pressure, and he dropped dead from a heart attack. And it becomes a really difficult one, because, again, if you're talking about the, the history of baseball, Pete Rose plays a huge part in it. He's part of these great Cincinnati teams. He's a hero to, you know, especially in Cincinnati, and to Philadelphia to a lesser extent. But at the same time, he's fatally flawed. He gambles on baseball. And for years and years and years, he denied it and denied it. And finally, a few years ago, he finally came out and said, yes, I gambled on baseball. But he, his, his argument was, oh, I only gambled on my team to win when I was managing. So in other words, he was betting on himself. But as anyone who knows anything about gambling or gambling addiction, there is just... As if you would just bet on your own team when you thought you were going to win. And finally, again, after a few more years, it, yep, I bet against my team, I bet for my team, I bet on baseball. He was just a major league gambling addict. And it becomes a difficult thing. There's, the, there's an argument of say, okay, he's been on the permanently ineligible list since 1990. It's been 28 years. He's been punished enough. Do you let him into the Hall of Fame? Because you're telling baseball story, and you're saying that yes, there is gambling, and there is 
you know, our heroes and our legends can often be flawed people off the field. In other words, the gambling really only took a hold as management when he was in management. It wasn't his playing career. And I suppose the way how I would do it is I think you should put Pete Rose into the Hall of Fame. However, I think it should be caveated only after he dies. I think you have to tell the story of Pete Rose, but it has to be a... You have to learn something from it. In other words, I don't think that you can have Pete Rose as it is, because he is still... He loves baseball, and he is a baseball nut. But he's also a gambler. And he still is shady, and he still probably hasn't ever come fully to terms with what he's done. And I think you should almost say, look, Pete, we believe you're a Hall of Famer, but your actions are so deleterious to baseball is that you can never have that honour of, you know, sitting there at Cooperstown and doing your speech. In other words, when you pass, you will be an icon, a great baseball player. And we will then put your plaque into the Hall of Fame, but it will be, you know, effectively a memorial and a warning at the same time. Is that you cannot bet on baseball. You cannot degrade it. You cannot... Any, is that if you do that, that there is no recourse. And that's why I think you should put, you know, Joe Jackson into the Hall of Fame. Because... Gambling and the elements of it, which is more in the Joe Jackson case than it ever was in the Pete Rose case, and putting Marvin Miller in there. It's you need at this point to wrap up the twentieth century, and that means to say that Joe Jackson was a Hall of Fame, a legendary baseball player, but he was of his era, which meant yeah, that there was issues between ownership and management and players. And that meant that they were, you know, vulnerable to the gamblers. And that, you know, his punishment was severe. But he is still a Hall of Famer. Even if you have to sit there and tell a story from, you know, a... You know, he never got to see himself as a Hall of Famer. It's still controversial even now. And then if you sit there, and the same thing with Pete Rose. He was a Hall of Famer, but he never was there to see it himself. And that's the ultimate punishment. Is that yes, we know he's a Hall of Famer, but he was never going to see himself as one. He was only a Hall of Famer, you know, in after he passed. And much in the same way that it should be an absolute criminal shame that Marvin Miller didn't get to do a speech and that he didn't get to see himself as a Hall of Famer. I suppose just to sort of conclude this, one of with baseball scandals, it tells the story and the ongoing story between things like you know labour, management, and you know the human vulnerability, the human frailty and weakness, you know in terms of things like gambling, in terms of steroids, in terms of cheating, and I suppose the one good thing that comes out of this is no matter what, even if some of the the remedies like you know Kenneshaw Mountain Landis. Banning people forever from baseball, you know the whole 
you know, reams of arguments pro and against, you know, steroid users getting into the Hall of Fame, is that baseball has always overcome. And there's some element that even if things, even if mistakes are made, that eventually they will be righted. And as long as the game carries on, then there, you know, there's still hope. And there's still the beautiful understanding that you have as a kid and as an older man or, you know, as a granddad. But it's still this magical game. Thank you for listening.